Hello listeners, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome once again to the Aruka Network podcast. This month, we're venturing to the Middle East to ask what it's like to try and live as a healthy community when that community is under a blockade. It's important all the time to try to find a window to the bright future and become more patient, become more hopeful. Because the worst thing that could happen to someone in our situation is to become helpless or to feel like that there is no hope in the future, which paves the way to different aggressive behavior, whether towards oneself or to, towards the others. The history of the Israel-Palestine conflict is a history of competing stories. For example, to Israelis, 1948 marked their first Independence Day. It's a cause for celebration. But to Palestinians, 1948 is known as the Nakba, which means disaster, because this is when they lost a large portion of their homeland. And then there's 1967. To Israelis, the year marked a miraculous triumph over surrounding Arab armies in a six-day war. But to Palestinians, 1967 was the beginning of the Israeli occupation over their land. And then in 2006, the Palestinians held democratic elections. But the party that won in the Palestinian territory of Gaza was deemed a terrorist organisation by Israel and by much of the international community. And so Israel began to enforce a blockade on the territory by very strictly controlling the movement of people and goods in and out of Gaza, Israel could reduce the number of attacks on them by Gazan militants, but to Gazans, this blockade has crippled their economy. And since this blockade began, there have been three large-scale conflicts, the most recent in 2014, killing over 1,400 civilians and making hundreds of thousands of Gazans homeless. All of this conflict is typically discussed in terms of history or politics or religion, but what about mental health? because the combination of Gaza's isolation and its exposure to violence place unique mental health pressures on the community there. And this situation means that it's home to a number of world experts on precisely this subject of mental health in communities of conflict. The voice you heard a minute ago is one of these experts. His name is Dr Yasser Abu Jameh. He's a Palestinian, he's a psychiatrist, and he's the director of the Gaza Community Mental Health Programme. I spoke to him earlier this month to learn more about community mental health. And because Gaza has a very young population, this conversation tended to focus on children and young people. But we started off by discussing how this conflict and this isolation impacts mental health. And Yasser focused on two things. One is anxieties, fear, and the other issue is like a big problem with hope. Hope is a big issue when you look at the young people, when you look at teenagers, when you look at adolescents, when they see that more than 60% of the new graduates are simply unemployed when you have more than 42% of the total population unemployed and you look around, you find the difficulty of travel, etc., etc. It's a very gloomy future for any young man or woman who is looking around. And then you have to deal with all those difficulties while actually the solution is not in your hand. Actually, the solution is uh, far beyond your uh, your capacity. In a moment, we'll get on to... Although, although the, the, you say the solution is out of your hands, I know that there's lots of things that you're doing through your work that are a response to all these issues. But firstly, just, just personally, I wonder how you 
how you stay strong in these living in this environment where do you find strength well uh, this is a very challenging question all the time and we ask ourselves this question because we need to find strength points and uh, strengthen it further into people who visit us because this is part of what we could do and uh, there are a few issues also to have in mind one of, of them is that you know being under occupation means immediately that uh, you are on the right side, which means you struggle to end the occupation and that ultimately the occupation will uh, will end. Whether this is going to happen today or tomorrow, we are living under the last occupation on this planet and hopefully it will end. And we see with time that the international community is not anymore accepting the occupation. We are waiting for justice. We have a very fair case. People are waiting with extreme patience, hoping for a better tomorrow and uh, waiting for the day that justice prevails. So this is a very important uh, aspect uh, of it. Uh, we have very strong uh, social uh, network, very strong social support. Families are very uh, strong. The social ties within the families are, are very strong. And this community adherence uh, plays a lot of importance as a factor that people will help each other overcome difficulties, overcome challenges. We'll get on to social support in a, in a moment and community um, in Gaza. But do you want to tell me now, how did the Gaza Community Mental Health Programme come about? Well, you know, it's strange and ironic, which is that, you know, Community psychiatry or social psychiatry, sometimes it's called, or community mental health, began as a model in, in Europe 40 or 50 years ago for different reasons. One of them was the high cost of hospital services, you know. So an, uh, an outpatient service was uh, more cost effective, more efficient, and it's also better for patients to stay within the community. Now, in the late uh, 80s, when Iyad Saraj, our founder, he, he was as worker in uh, as a psychiatrist in the mental health hospital, psychiatric hospital, he thought that community work will be better uh, service for the community which lives under occupation with many uh, uh, children and women affected by the aggression that was taking place by the Israeli soldiers at the time of the first uprising, which includes night raids for the, for the houses and various attacks on the houses and not blockade, but curfews, etc., etc., etc. And at that time, he thought of establishing the first community mental health center in Gaza and in Palestine. Now, with years, unfortunately, the time that followed necessitated more community mental health activities. And this because, like, with time, things continue to deteriorate rather than improve. So community psychiatry or community mental health is a good solution, and it's a response to the need of the community which lives under occupation, uh, which faces daily uh, pressures and you need to work with those pressures. Now, one of the main things that we noticed throughout the years is that it's important all the time to find hope in people's lives and to try to empower that hope, to, have, to try to find a window to the future, you know, to the bright future or to whatever, you know, and try to make those uh, people stick to it, you know, and uh, become more patient, become more hopeful. Because the worst thing that could happen to someone in our situation is to become helpless or to feel like that there is no hope in the future, which paves the way to different aggressive behavior, whether towards oneself or to, towards the others. And, uh, and this could open the gate for severe depression and manifestation of problems. 
I then asked Yasser to describe some of the ways his organisation go about involving the community in their mental health programmes. The last 10 years, we started to focus a lot on working with school children. We, we implement different programmes with schools, including a big programme, school mediation, where we teach children how to deal with their differences through mediation rather than through violence. We have also a, a big programme for parents on how to respond and how to deal with children's needs and how to respond if there is a child with some psychological problem. So it's not only centered, but it's more the community-centered approach where we help people around the patient, help the patient himself overcome the challenges. What really keeps us moving forward is that we have a lot of success stories. You know, I'll tell you, um, one good example is, is that, uh, you know, you deal with the school and you start going there. Uh, you start working with uh, the school counselor and the school teacher, and then you pick 15 uh, school children you decide that those will be the mediators and those are picked based on a selection criteria by the teachers. Here we speak about children who are not necessarily the best and not necessarily the worst, not necessarily the good boys, not necessarily the bad boys. It's a mixture of those children who become trained on how to mediate uh, problems between their children. And now imagine that you have a school of about 700 children, a very crowded school with about maybe 45 children per class. Suddenly, they all go into the break, which continues for 30 uh, minutes. Usually, you see a lot of fights between the children. You know, children play, children fight. Now, when you look at the number of school mediators who start to apply that mechanism, and then you hear the feedback a few months later from the schoolmaster, the headmaster, or from the school counselor, that the number of uh, cases of uh, violence between children have decreased dramatically. It's a successful story. What was really interesting is that, you know, we give those school mediators during the school year, we give them a, a, a shirt, a T-shirt with, with the name of school mediation on it. Mm. Now, what was interesting is that when the children went to holidays and, you know, it was the end of the schooling year, some of them came back to our community center and they requested that T-shirt and they were saying, well, we'd like to play that mediator's role within our neighborhood, which was very interesting. So mm. you look at uh, a way of children who are adapting uh, a better way of looking at things, and then they decide by themselves to take that experience, not only from their schools or to their schools, but also to their community and uh, apply it. And then, do, do you know what do you know what they're doing then in their community? What what they're mediating? Um, it's it's again it's children fights. It's problems between the children. Mm. We apply this to children between the age of uh, nine and uh, fifteen. And uh, you know uh, we cannot apply this to all schools in Gaza Strip. We pick about seven to eight schools on an annual basis. And what happened is that uh, you know different uh, children in the neighborhood go to different schools. So they thought that it's a better idea to deal with their problems within the, the, the community. So that's why they asked for the T-shirts in order to be able to apply what they learned at the school within their uh, community and uh, use mediation rather than fights in order to overcome their problems and difficulties, which is, uh, you know, something we consider uh, a change in, in, in behavior. Imagine, you know, that young man could become... Uh, uh, more engaged with his uh, school, with his academic achievement. Uh, another, uh, yeah, please. And, and those sound like the kind of skills or qualities that would make for 
excellent political leaders as they as they grow up as well is that is that a kind of hope that these yeah. these qualities would stay with them into their adult life yeah of course you know the best uh, skills that we acquire really is what we acquire during our childhood you know what mm. the child acquires it stays with him or with her forever you know it's it's uh, it's more important what you get you during your uh, early years than what you get later you know when things become hard and it's different to change your uh, lifestyle or the way you do things you know of course when you learn the new skills apply it like it when you are young of course it remains and it stays with you and in this case when you live in a very violent atmosphere with a very very violent society subjected to different traumatizing events and then you decided that the best way to do things is through mediation you speak about a huge success you know a, a way of turning the whole person uh, around you know from what could be worst to what could be best. Mm. Last time I was in the West Bank, I remember having a conversation with someone. I can't remember who it was, but it was it was a local person. And I was telling them about how homelessness is uh, increasingly a problem in, in my country, in the UK. But the you don't see i never saw homelessness in the west bank and it's a comparatively much poorer place but you don't see homelessness and he was saying well because community is stronger and families family bonds are stronger that people wouldn't wouldn't become homeless somebody would would take them in so so a person would never find themselves or very rarely find themselves in this in the situation of being homeless and so it seems to me that in this part of the world people there's there's a much stronger sense of community and family does that lend itself to this community based model of mental health intervention uh you know when you go to intervene in the community or within the community uh, you need the uh, resources to help you. You cannot only deal with the patient himself. You need people around the patient to help you. You, know, you need people in, their, in, in his or in her immediate environment. That could be his family. That could be siblings. You know, that could be parents, husband and wife. Could be uh, children. Could be also work uh, friends. Could be teachers, etc., etc., etc. So community approach is extremely empowered when you involve people around uh, the patient in the therapeutic intervention. It, it, it makes a big uh, change in terms of ensuring compliance if there is medication or in terms of psychotherapy or in terms of education, etc., etc., etc. What we have in, in Gaza is that we still have powerful extended family structure. You know? Although we have many families that became nuclear ones, but still the extended family structure is the very important one. So, for example, you know, the grandfather is still in the neighborhood. He has five or six sons and daughters, and they are all married, and they live in, in the same uh, place or space. So whenever one of them is facing a problem, then everyone is there to help him or to help her overcome problems, you know. And uh, this... Uh, 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 cohesive uh, structure doesn't really give space to having someone who is homeless. You know, it uh, doesn't work like that, you know, because the concept of individualism, which is now the main one in the Western society, mm. uh, which focuses mainly on the individual himself, you know, everyone is the, has the right to do whatever he or she wants, and then he can leave the family, live wherever, whenever, etc., etc., etc. And from the other side, 
parents, for example, are not that much, uh, how to say, uh, obliged to follow or to care for, because sometimes it's looked as they are like interfering with the, with the life of their uh, children, which is sometimes uh, not that much expected, not that much allowed. But here in, in Gaza, it's the opposite. Sometimes parents are blamed if they cannot intervene in order to advise or correct what could be seen as a mistake by the child or by their son or by their daughter. So the whole society gives the extended family an important role. And when you work as a mental health professional within this society, you need to make use of the structures which are present in the society, or you need sometimes to deal with the implications of those structures. Sometimes in the extended family, there is a very prominent structure or person who is uh, the root of the problem that you have to deal with. So, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the extended family is a problem by itself in some cases, you know. But in any way, you have to deal with, uh, with it. But when it comes to issues like, for example, trauma, like loss, which is the root for depression, of course, the presence of extended family is very important and is very important. So we talked a bit about the other services they offer, so psychotherapy, counselling, family education, telephone counselling, and then something a bit unexpected. We started for the last three years to train some uh, sports coaches on how to provide uh, some sort of psychological assistance to children, and which means is that you use uh, football when the trainer really is expected to speak to the child, uh, to uh, try to get closer to the child and understand his fears, try to ventilate those fears or to work on dealing with with those fears. It's a way of using sports to encourage uh, communication between children and between sport coaches, and then they could speak about their fears and get rid of, uh, of them. Uh, we applied that in some schools with different uh, sports clubs. And what was interesting is that in the beginning, parents were not happy about uh, the enrollment of their children because they're afraid that if a child will stay an hour or two, two times per week after the class's time, that would simply hinder his academic achievement and development, you know, because you would uh, waste some time. But what was interesting is that uh, some parents were hesitant, but they decided to let their children go through that experience. The interesting thing is that uh, children who were enrolled in this program didn't only improve when it comes to uh, becoming less isolated, but also their academic achievement uh, improved a lot, which means that they got higher self-esteem. And suddenly, instead of parents being afraid of their children enrollment on those programs, suddenly it became a favorable program. So things are uh, somehow linked to each other in a very uh, strange way. So, so uh, I mean, uh, you find different uh, examples in the community where you uh, aim for uh, some results, and with that good result, you get another uh, add-on, which keeps you, again, interested in the work you do, uh, happy for the results you get, and gives you power to continue the path that you started working I then asked Yasser some questions specific to our clusters and our network. Firstly, I wanted to know where do you start if you want to set up some kind of community mental health program? People should start for merely assessing the needs of the people they want to serve. It's very important to understand the context where you work and to find the most appropriate help for those people who live in that context. And here you can benefit from the previous experiences of different places around the world. There are many different places with excellent experience who could really give good advice. 
and this is something that we do, by the way. There are some centers in the Middle East who try to start opening and they ask us from where we could start and we give them a lot of help with that. So it all depends on the context where you really work, which model you need to apply. Okay. Another question. I think you've kind of answered. How does mental health impact other kinds of health? Well, I gave a couple of answers, for example, mm. how it improves the academic achievement among children, how it improves the living skills among people. But here I would like to answer something very specific, which is that fear sometimes and depression sometimes, but mainly fear, you know, anxiety brings a lot of uh, physical complaints. And in many ways, those physical complaints just go away when the mental health really improves. And it's very important, you know, it's very important to consider for people who continue to be sick, to continue to have several pains, to consider thinking about a mental health issue that could be either the root cause of the physical complaint or basically a factor that aggravates the symptoms of that physical complaint. The linkage is there. It's scientifically proven. So one needs to be sure that this is the right uh, direction for that. Interesting. Thank you. And in our network, we're interested in pursuing three things, health, well-being and happiness. How would you define health? Wow, this is, I mean, a very uh, uh, big question. Defining health is always uh, debatable. You know, the WHO uh, gave a good definition, which is about well-being. You know, health is a feeling of well-being. And this is something really uh, relative. And it doesn't mean only the physical well-being, but also the physical, the psychological well-being, enjoying uh, a good uh, mental health and living in uh, a place where you feel uh, that your human rights are preserved that you are you, you you are able to fulfill what you need to do, that you are able to cope with the challenges that you face, that you are able of, be, of being a very productive uh, person. So it's a combination of good physical health, good environmental conditions around you, and the ability to cope with challenges, and of course, the ability to produce something, to be productive and to be helpful for others. Mm. Just finally, you're in an important position of leadership. And I just wonder, a lot of people in our network are are young people who are coming into a position of community leadership. What kind of things do you advise to or would you advise to young people in community leadership? Well, I I could say something very uh, simple, which is that uh, if you find yourself in a leadership position, the most important thing is that you are in a place that you really want to be. Because being a leader is quite demanding, whether it's your work, whether it's your position or whatever, you know. It's quite demanding. It's quite uh, stressful. It's not an easy thing. So if this is what a young man or a young woman wants, go ahead with it and try your best. And it's a very rewarding uh, work. When you work hard, you will always succeed. You will always get what you want. You will always be considered a good leader. Just the main issue is that you are in the position where you want to be. If this is not what you want, just escape it. Try to find something else. The main thing, in my opinion, is that if you decide to devote your life for a position like a leader, something like that, just do it in the position or for the work or for the sake of people that you really want to help. Then you will not worry about other things. You will be successful all the time. That's great advice. Yes, that's everything I wanted to ask. Is there anything else you would like to add? 
Well, thank you very much for the uh, interview. I think I have spoken a lot and chatted a lot. I would like to say that Gaza is a very difficult place to live in. The conditions are really not uh, easy at all. However, people are uh, surviving. You know, Their main struggle now is to survive, is to continue. And uh, we are doing it in a very nice way. And we will continue to do it. And uh, we have many, many of the people around the world who are supporting us, who are present with us, if not in Gaza, but their uh, uh, heart is with, uh, with us. And we feel that, we are encouraged by that. And uh, we hope that one day everyone will be able to come and visit Gaza and stay with us as a friend, as a guest, and see how things are in the reality here in Gaza Strip. And we are thankful for everyone who is interested in knowing how are things in Gaza and how could help uh, Gaza. And uh, our hearts and our doors are always open. And so there you have it. That's Dr. Yasser Abu Jameh from the Gaza Community Mental Health Programme. As ever, if you have any feedback on this or previous episodes, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, then please do email me, jake at arukanetwork.org. And whether you're listening on SoundCloud or iTunes, then I would love for you to comment or share this podcast. That's it from me. Thank you again for listening. Bye for now.